I forgot what I was going to say. Um, I'm just going to... But I think the... Why are you saying, why are you saying holsters against us? What? It's kind of homophobic. It's kind of homophobic to say your holsters against us. It's not a valid way of criticizing things you have to edit that out. I think that's the OLP stuff. Bolster. Oh, is that what he meant? I don't. Is that is that a slang? That's not a slang. Oh, Christ! Hello and welcome to your weekly Alpha Bunga Bunga. So I'm George Hall. I tweet at Polwek, and with me today we have from Sao Paulo and tweeting at Alex Double Underscore Seventeen Eighty Nine. Alex Hockley. Hiya. <laughs> and live from Cardiff. Supping an ale, we have at the Philippics on Twitter, Phil Cunliffe. Hey, how's it going? Sadly, this is going to be the last Alpha Bunga Bunga in which we have the now classic lineup of me, Phil, and Alex, as Phil has been tempted away by a big money offer from one of our competitors, Ian Dunn's Romaniacs podcast. While we wish him well <laughs> in, this, in this new podcasting, it does feel like this is a sign of the big money that is killing the grassroots podcasting game. Uh, no, so I, I heard. I heard a rumor. I heard a rumor. He's actually going to Moscow for some Kremlin gold. I mean, I've, we've all been trying to get our hands on just a little taste. That's well. Let's hope that he can bring some gold back and uh, and share it with us. Um, but no. So seriously, Phil has taken literally the injunction hurled at him to get back to Russia and is going to uh, to the the, the fatherland. <laughs> so um, have a nice holiday. Phil. Is it the motherland or the fatherland? It's the motherland. There we it's go. Motherland. The motherland. Yeah. So Phil is going to his his mother's land. Um, so okay, let's let's get let, let's get started then. So on on Sunday we had our our um, eloquent um, dashing guest Luke get us on to talk to us about the upcoming British elections. Um, and depending on how quickly Alex edits this and how much of our shit he needs to cut out. You'll almost certainly be listening to this after the uh, election results. So go back to uh, that, to last week's episode and have a look at the predictions that we made that will almost certainly be proved wrong. So today we're not going to be talking about the election quite so much. Um, Instead, we're going to have a bit of a shorter episode, snappier, you know, more like on the button, that sort of thing. Um, And as regular listeners know, we often talk about this idea taken from the uh, Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci that we live in the interregnum. So this is the period where the old has died and the new cannot yet be born. And it, there's a whole range of morbid symptoms that arise. So Phil, what morbid symptoms have been on your mind this week? So the morbid symptom on my mind has been these memes associated with um, a certain new type, well, this certain generation of political leaders, particularly Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, the new French President Emmanuel Macron, but also um, also the ex-US President Obama. So usually what happens is some uh, straight bro on Twitter or on Facebook will catch one of these photos of these leaders being at, um, being at one of their get-togethers, the G7 or whatever, where they just happen to be snapped uh, casually in conversation and they just happen to kind of look particularly um, intimate or they're kind of at a slight distance away from the crowd and it's just the two of them talking, Macron and Trudeau on a balcony. And then these straight guys will kind of take that snap and provide some kind of text for it in the meme, which will go something like, um, you know, how much in love they are or when they're, they're so glad to be away from their wives or how they're both so young and good-looking. 
and the general the general gist of it is this um weird salivating unfunny and really lame adulation for um these young handsome um politicians who supposedly save us from the terrible forces of Brexit and Trump and fascism and nationalism. And these guys are the only ones who are standing between us and the global Armageddon of uh, populist nationalism or whatever. And anyway, it, the, the degree of adulation that you see in the meme, in the way in which the meme is presented, the most recent one, for instance, which you just could see very easily last night, is um, Obama manspreading in some diner booth Sitting, sitting opposite Trudeau, and the tagline is, oh, um, the tagline is, oh, well, you know, we're away from our wives, um, but then we end up talking about how great our sex lives are and how much we love being married. And it's so pathetic, and you can just imagine the kind of controversy and what that would be, that would be attracted if um, somebody did a similarly kind of um, drooling meme of appreciation for some of our less popular politicians today. Anyway, so all of these memes made me think about a idea put forward by the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek, who said that you have a that you don't really get cults of personality under totalitarianism, because under totalitarianism the romantic leadership cults tend to be embodied very abstract. They tend to be about the abstract virtues of the leader. So if you think of, say, the closest approximation to that is what we have, say, um, with King, jo King Jong-un, Kim Jong-un even, in North Korea, there isn't really, there isn't kind of cutesy photos of him produced by North Korean propaganda, um, which focus on some... Oh, I don't know, I don't know. I've seen some cutesy pictures of King Jong-un. It's like him visiting a factory, smiling at that sludge machine. Have you seen that? I mean, it looks kind if of... If you know where to look, you cute. That. <laughs> exactly. That cutesy but what are being well they but that's the filter through the western media what i mean what the point is i think in the in the claim made by Zizek is that the way in which totalitarian propaganda presents the leadership cult as they embody abstract virtues so avankula lenin in the soviet union stern kind of patriarchal stalin um a kind of remote uh, a remote authoritarian kind of figure of authority lead the um, Hitler in the Third Reich, um, but they're, they're nothing to do with kind of proximity to the individual's personality, and there's no kind of um, idea of clubbiness or friendliness or um, anything specific to them as individuals. So there's nothing in it, actually, in the so-called personality cults of totalitarianism. There is nothing in it which is about the kind of individual, the specific things that make them an individual, rather than the embodiments of some abstract virtue to represent the yeah. nation yeah no i mean i, t I totally that, that totally makes intuitive sense to me like the kind of images that we see of kind of white horse riding trudeau and 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 macron and, and obama for that matter as well like are more suited probably to a game of fuck marry kill than <laughs> than uh than actually any discussion of politics it's funny you should bring that up yeah yeah you're just dying to say which one you'd rather fuck marry and kill, <laughs> Go on. No, any, anyway, what I was going to say, anyway, just to finish the thought, is um, that, uh, yeah, so GJ's point, and I think it's really kind of exemplified and demonstrated in memes that have just circulated over the last few months since the um, election of Macron in France, 
His point is that actually um, personality cults, i.e., where you have a political kind of a political persona is constructed around fondness and direct kind of proximate attachment to somebody as an individual, as a specific kind of concrete individual person. That can only really come about in democracy. Um, and it's a really good point. And I mean, I think it has both positives and negatives. I mean, it's making, it's positive in the sense it kind of says something important about the development of individual personality in um, in modern society and its importance. Um, but it also, you know, obviously, I mean, the point is that these personality cults are also totally bogus and phony. And in so much as political authority is constructed around, um, is constructed around um, this idea of faux, faux proximity to people, um, you know, that's obviously bogus. The difference, I guess, is in totalitarianism, the, they don't work for free, right? The idiots who create these memes um, do it for free, as far as I know. I mean, maybe some of them are bots, who knows? Um, you know, but you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I mean, they're so stupidly, unimaginatively designed and so unfunny, they might as well be designed by bots. Um, but you know, the, the, it's, the level of adulation is so kind of moronic. Yeah, no. So I, I've, I've people... got this thing. I've got this thing about this, right? Because a lot of mainstream political analysts and think tankers and people running the show behind political parties, which are completely disconnected from from their social base, are constantly on the lookout for a new political figure which is has the crucial ingredient of authenticity. They seem like an ordinary guy, right? Um, and you can look at evidence. You know, I think the, this discussion came up with George W. Bush already like more than a decade ago, that he was the guy who you felt like you'd like to have a beer with uh, and therefore was more electable, unlike the stale John Kerry, for example. So they're constantly casting around for this sort of figure as someone who can like inspire people. But I think what the recent period has shown, like even Corbyn's candidacy and the surge that he's had, he is not a particularly charismatic figure, but he seems to have an authentic politics at least. And it, that kind of demonstrates the falsity of this notion that somehow what is appealing about a politician is something that is inherent in their personality as a person and not their politics. I think it's a really good point, actually. And I mean, it goes, I, go, I suppose it goes further to expose the falsity of, the, of these um, artificially constructed means that give you the sense of um, individual kind of proximity and attachment to them as individual personalities. When, like you say, I mean, the authenticity of Corbyn doesn't, I mean, you know, some of it's to do with his personality. He's a kind of, um, you know, he's kind of appears fairly likable and uh, relaxed, I suppose. Um, but the authenticity is to do with the constancy of his politics. And, you know, in making the um, pushing forward the Labour manifesto with the pledges that it has, his, um, he is a credible opponent of um, austerity and a credible proponent of something like renationalizing the railways in because he's stood for a certain he's associated with a certain political tradition so i think it's a really good point and it goes to show again just how kind of ridiculous those means are i think this Where, um i think this phenomenon reaches its its nadir in in one sense in the figure of hillary clinton um there's, it, it brings all these things together. Noted, um, noted with, with, slave owner Hillary Clinton. We've just yes, I should, I should correct that. Noted slave owner Hillary Clinton. That wasn't even spotted during the campaign. That was an astonishing story. Yeah. I mean, just astonishing. We should clarify. Maybe we should explain it yeah, to Yeah, 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 go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, it, was, um, it came out from um, a, a book, a chat page of a book that has been shared from um, Hillary's own writings, in fact, where she described how when she and her husband, Bill Clinton, when he was governor of Arkansas, 
um, and they were in the governor's mansion, there was a long-standing tradition whereby they would um, take on local prisoners, um, who obviously are all black in Arkansas, um, who would work in the governor's mansion as gardeners, um, servants, um, and she was made, she boasted about how they made a particularly, they prided themselves in the fact that any infringement of the rules um, would result in the prisoners being sent immediately back to prison. And the astonishing complacency from this southern politician who would, who cast herself as this multicultural representative of the American nation at large and all the rainbow identity politics groups that line up beside the Democratic Party machine. And here she is boasting about the fact that they have black servants yeah, no, in she, a southern mansion. But she's brought she's brought lesser evilism home. <laughs> she's brought lesser evilism home because just listen i've got to i've got to keep this effectively slave labor at home otherwise they've got to go to prison so you've got to go with the lesser evil here so it's good to yeah. see that she's consistent <laughs> she, in her lesser yeah, evilism right, yeah. i think the one of the kind of red hottest takes of this on twitter that i saw was essentially saying that <clears throat> criticizing clinton for slave ownership was sexist or is sexist and it's like that oh interesting that you criticize her <laughs> as a woman no <laughs> Yeah. No way! I can't believe that. Yeah, that's so, not possible, surely. I mean, I, I mean, that's 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 Twitter for you. If you want to get mad and waste time, that's a place to go. Um, but I just wanted to return to the, I think, some interesting aspects of of this kind of cult of personality around Clinton. Um, one that was also, you know, um, retrospectively coloured by the the failure of that campaign. <laughs> I think there were there were there were two things which really stuck out. One was this weird. And this, this is follows on from what you were saying, Phil, this weird kind of sexualized element to it that's kind of hidden, it's slightly below the surface. Um, and the second thing is that in this in the case of Hillary, it did have some of these really classic cult of personality um facets around this. We've failed her. So basically she was this world historical force that failed and uh, it wasn't her fault. It was that we didn't live up to the to what the leader required. And I think it's it really poses some questions around what kind of kind of psychologically weak elite loser gets into this kind of state of of creating these memes or following these people. I'm I'm, I'm assuming that neither of the two of you have, have been creating these memes. No comment. <laughs> Only. I mean, if... often we recognise things in or we recognise things very acutely that we do ourselves. So maybe fail this. Maybe we need to do. Maybe, maybe we need that. Maybe we need black memes. So like you have black propaganda that came out wrong. Um, <laughs> Whoa. The, way, the, way have, <laughs> the way you have black propaganda, you know, so like um, yeah. you claim, you make a certain claim that's actually designed to um, to make a point, but it comes from the opposite side. Yeah. You could have um, such a similar kind of meme. I'm not an so, expert you know, on this, like, but I'm pretty sure this is subverting happening. subverting the claim that you're making. I'm not, I, like, it wouldn't surprise me to find that a lot of kind of 4chan alt-right types have been doing that for liberals. So I don't know if that's a road we want to go down but yeah i think that i think that's a really a really interesting observation from uh from zizek via phil um but alex what what morbid symptoms have been occupying your your brain space um, this week i think there's a discussion uh, that has come about with polling particularly with some pretty significant polling misses particularly in the anglo world over the past couple of years a sort of a, a recognition, at least a popular recognition, of the political role that polls play, that they're not just people analyzing from the sidelines, but that they are themselves a form of political intervention. And it's a necessarily conservative form of political intervention, 
by assessing and and uh, put, putting forward what the commonly held view is on a, on a candidate or on a party, where they stand in the polls, and then therefore closing the window of possibility, the, the sort of Overton window, and narrowing it by saying, listen, these guys are right. these guys have a 60% likelihood of winning, these guys have a 40% likelihood of winning, so you might as well forget everything else. Um, and the constant discussion of polling, which, you know, to be fair, we, we even do in this podcast because I, I kind of find it interesting, but it's it does have a conservative role. So... I wonder whether there's not a case for a more severe restriction of polling than happens now. I mean, France has traditionally had a much more um, has had a much more restrictive policy with regard to what polls are allowed to do, and especially when they come up close to an election, uh, than has been the case in the UK, for example. And here's where a point where I think there's two different competing sort of value propositions, which is one that uh, value positions rather that you've got a sort of liberal, libertarian defense of free speech that polls are themselves and that the, the publishing of polls, of public polling, is a matter of free speech. They so should be able to publish them however you like. And then there's a kind of a more Republican understanding of democracy uh, based on the common good and the, the sort of virtue inherent in voting according to your conscience, not influenced by by uh, popular polling. So, I mean, what, what do we think of that? Is there is there a value in restricting polling coming up to an election and restricting the political role they have? Or is there maybe an argument that, you know, well, nowadays, in the past couple of years, survey companies have really struggled to accurately analyze what people are going to do because maybe people are beginning to lie to pollsters and just doing something very different uh, in a form of rebellion to what they say they're going to do. And in that case, maybe it does. this discussion is rendered completely redundant. The latter, I think, because... Um... I think, I mean, it's uh, very much, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, I'm not great, hugely familiar with the history of polling um, as a political institution or a social institution. It's, I mean, it's obviously a post-war thing, but I mean, it seems to me a quintessential political technology of, mm. of centrism and technocracy of the last 30 years or so. I mean, it makes sense in terms of, um, it's, uh, it makes sense in when you're, all your political strategy is nothing but triangulation. When you can take for granted your base core of voters and then it's simply a matter of um, tracking towards the center in the elect electoral terms and then you know you can do whatever you want once you have power um, and if you can't take your um, base of support for granted as um, social democratic parties clearly can't in the west as the labor party realized that it couldn't when it was met by the challenge of ukip and brexit um, and if uh, your or if your electoral base is somehow being shredded, say the old industrial working class in the Rust Belt, or say the church vote um, for Tories, you can't take your base of support for granted. Um, it makes it uh, it makes it much more difficult to kind of sally out on the basis of polling evidence towards the centre. So I think I mean the conversation is rendered redundant because um, it's a polling itself. I mean isn't doesn't work to influence people to the extent that you suggest when there is a major kind of political realignment going away and in which um, party political loyalties seem to be much more fluid compared to the past. I think it's, I think it's absolutely essential to criticise the use of polling in contemporary politics because it's, it is part of that, of the, the technocrats, the, the centrist liberal technocrats arsenal um, of, of, of politics, not um, I think it's 
if you if you live your political life by polling, you'll fall into the trap that Clinton did of just not campaigning in places that you should do, just trusting the stats. And I think there's a deeper problem than that as well, which that it it just takes people's views as completely static, um, rather than trying to create a movement and lead people and actually influence people's ideas. It's just a snapshot which you then adjust and and bend to. And I think actually though the the history of of political sociology and polling had at least the people who initially did it. So David Butler. And a lot of these were related to uh, or affiliated with Nuffield College in Oxford, which I have an affiliation with as well. Um, and they they did see themselves as a way of introducing what people thought into politics in a much in, in a kind of a democratic a democratic impulse. At least, and they may or may not have been mistaken, but this was their idea that if you ask a, a wide number of people about an issue, this is a way to inject what they think rather than just having elite discussions and I think it's it's important to criticize polling because it's come a, a, a very long way from those initial aspirations and now it's it is um, essentially part of the market research view of politics yeah I think I mean I, I basically think that's right and I, I'm kind of happy to see um, the realignment that's happening now be able to evade the gaze of the pollsters your starting provocation made me think of um, Maybe think of Brecht and would it not be easier for the pollsters to dissolve the sample and create another? So I don't know if you get that reference. Yeah, listener, no, but read a book sometime. No, our listeners are just so crude and uneducated Philistines. They don't get your highbrow. I went to Nuffield reference. I've actually met um, on in real life some of our <laughs> listeners, and it's not a not a pretty not a pretty sight. Um, <laughs> To be it's fair, I mean, I just like to, I poll them, I don't want to meet them. I hire, <laughs> the, I hire out agencies to do that for you them. I've got no desire to actually meet a listener. Poll them, poll them. I have a, I have a polling agent who them with samples their opinions for me. This is, this is, this, this is great. <laughs> I wouldn't we, touch them with a poll. We, we can have a, the, the description of this episode, kind of 15 minutes of polling puns, um, which is fantastic, I think. That's about the level that our listeners will be able to handle. I don't know why I'm going after our listeners, actually, <laughs> all three of them. Um, yeah, what the hell is that? With a, um, anyway, I, I wouldn't so, touch them with a barge pole. I, I want to get closer <laughs> than that. <laughs> okay, um, great. So, fantastic. Uh, so what I've been thinking about this um, this week, so I went, um, I went last night to a, um, a fundraising event for the City of London Appeals Clinic, um, which is a, a great institution. You should check it out on, on Twitter or other internet means um and there was a discussion which was <clears throat> essentially about the uh, so it's about the general election campaigns um but very quickly um actually it became clear that the main thing that the audience wanted to talk about <clears throat> and so the event was held opposite uh, goldsmiths uh, college in in london in southeast london what the audience wanted to talk about was the split um in the electorate um on the basis of age so there's been some really interesting um polling uh, you know, you live or die by polling, obviously, um, which shows that basically there's a really strong correlation between age and uh, inverse correlation between age and support for the Labour Party. So basically all these young people are being um, told to get out, told to get out and vote specifically uh, for the Labour Party when, when, when that is specified. But in fact, more generally, just get out and vote. That's all you have to do. Get out and vote, young people. Um, and there was echoes definitely in one of the contributors, one of the discussants pointed this out. Avian McEwen's slightly sinister claim that if the referendum had been held two years later, all of the, <clears throat> or a large number of the Leave voters would have 
would have died and not be able not have been able to vote. It wasn't clear if he um, would have had any agency in those people dying or not, but there was it seemed like there was an implied threat to kill your gran in Ian McEwan's <laughs> comments. So yeah, I, I guess what I just I just wanted to pose this this question to you guys. To what extent do you think the the situation in in the UK is is exceptional? This this generational divide, or do you think it's part of a bit of a wider trend in European politics or, or world politics? I remember when I was younger, my brother once locked my grandmother up in 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 a room somewhere, and then like we went all outside, and then he later on, everyone was wondering where she'd gone, and then he started loudly bragging, "I locked grandma in the bathroom," um, and maybe that should be like a lo- a labor <laughs> a labor slogan for tomorrow. Well, lock your grandma in the bathroom I tomorrow. Think, yeah. I think I think we just found a title for the episode. <laughs> Um, no, but I think I think uh, I think seriously, I think that is fascinating. I have one question, and I, I haven't looked into the figures on this. To what extent does that generational gap um, on voting Labour versus Tory correlate with voting Brexit or voting Stay, Leave or Remain? Any ideas? It correlates pretty closely. I think. I mean, I think the um, most uh, people um, think. I think up to the age of 35 and, you know, the, the further away you are between from 35 down, you're more likely to vote remain and people um, over 35, the further you are away from 35 up, you are more likely to vote leave. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that this idea of youth turnout has become kind of one of the key words of the election. So this was supposed to be the Brexit election. Um, <clears throat> I think, sadly, that has fallen very far into the background of what of what the narrative around the election and what the, the, the parties in the election are, are competing over um and instead it's all these polls and youth youth turnout um um deter will determine who wins or which which, which um, model is correct but i think what's been striking is that we've now have all of the big institutions of youth culture um as it were coming out in favor of corbyn so we've got the enemy we've got Kerrang. Which you, which you guys might or might not remember, we've got a whole a whole range of grime artists, and basically, all of these people whose uh, whose um, reputation is is being resurrected on the basis of their of their support of Corbyn. So how how confident are we in the in these young people being kind of in millennials, which we to some of us may or may not be in millennials, kind of saving politics from the the oldsters who only vote in their own self-interest and they're going to be dead in five years anyway, so they shouldn't even get a vote. I mean, obviously that polarizing that. narrative is, is nonsense. Um, I also thought that I'm the enemy was only red. I'm a millennial too. <laughs> okay, Phil. Okay. <laughs> Pat's on the head. Um, I think I thought the enemy was only read by like sad 40-somethings nostalgic for the glory days of Indy in the 90s. I don't no, know. the enemy is good again now. Oh, is this it? is the whole point. It's been, res- it's been, it's, uh, reputation's been resurrected by, by the absolute boy, Corbyn. Ah, do you remember Pogs? They're back in elf form. Little Simpsons reference. I don't, I don't get that. I actually don't get that reference. But I do remember Pogs. Um, Is there something more significant sociologically going on with this interge- this generational gap? Um, is it based on young people's experience nowadays? The the thing that's often brought up is if you were if you were growing up in the seventies, you could have a house, you could have a car, you could afford to have a family at a young age. Whereas nowadays, you have a much more precarious existence, and so on. Is that the defining factor? Is there something culturally going on? I mean, I haven't witnessed anything culturally, especially um, which divides, say, those under thirty five and those above it. Um, so I just wonder whether there is something more substantial to it. Uh, beyond their 
the intentions of, of voting Labour versus Tory? No, I think there is. I mean, there is a sociological divide, which um, isn't, you know, I mean, it's um, it's not something as substantial and enduring, say, as a class division or a national division, um, because it'll shift and evolve over time. I mean, obviously, you know, these this cohort who everyone is um, talking about now will get older themselves and so on. But, I mean, it is significant sociologically in terms of, say, um, you know, access to housing, whether you have a permanent job, um, likelihood of being able to get a mortgage. And I mean this, you know, Europe-wide, not just in the UK. Um, whether or not you're renting, whether or not you've endured, um, whether or not your wage has been stagnant for the last 10 years, if, you're, if your access to the labour market is only kind of on temporary contract so you know precarious work or whatever how long you've been in education if you're you know if you're able to access a job um, commensurate with your level overall level of education I think those sociological markers are significant and you know it's not surprising that they've been politicized to some extent I think I mean it's also to some degree a substitute for it's a way of um over-reading and um, hardening certain political attitudes. So we shouldn't dissolve political attitudes into the underlying kind of sociological base for them. But I mean, you know, it's it's um, understandable and predictable that they would, that these sociological economic changes would be, have some kind of political expression. Yeah, I think that's right. There's an element to which, um, as an objective factor, it's clearly uh, a generational dimension is very important as you said, but there's also a degree to which uh, generational consciousness, the politicization of, uh, of of this generational gap can be problematic precisely because it obscures class divisions, as if being young makes you a more deserving uh, member of the public than an old person who had it all too easy, which is a sort of problematic discussion that you seem to get nowadays, where you might get a young um, middle-class person living in London um, casting aspersions on the older working class person in a northern town as less deserving and someone whose voice shouldn't be taken into account because they've had it all easy, which is a real perverse way of looking at it. Yeah, and I mean, it's also, um, I mean, it, it was most sharply expressed in Brexit. And it's worth, I mean, you know, this idea that the older generations um, ruin the chances of youth to freely wander around Europe and to benefit from the European Union. And it's an, such a blinkered kind of, um, such a blinkered and um, self-fulfilling also. I mean, it's like like almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy view of, um, of a generation. Um, and hopefully it'll fall away. But I mean, you know, the real, the real case is that the, it was the older generation who did the younger generation a favor by giving them an opportunity to live in, a, in the possibility of living in an accountable liberal democracy. But also, I mean, you know, the idea if you compare, say, traveling around Europe in the past during the Cold War when you had the Iron Curtain and you had actual restrictions on traveling around Europe compared to today, you know, like nobody's going to stop you interrailing to Poland after Brexit. You know, that's not going to happen. Um, my dad traveled behind the Iron Curtain during the 60s. You know, he um, even smuggled dissident literature behind the Iron Curtain. So, I mean, for you know, I'm not going I'm not going to be shedding tears over the threat posed to the movement for young people today by Brexit. Yeah, I think there's <clears throat> there's definitely a, a, a kind of backwards looking aspect to this, which is, you know, look look at all of the, the public services that that our parents have, have 
have sold off. This is one of the narratives um, that the baby boomers had it so easy, and now, <clears throat> and then they presided over neoliberalism, and they're okay, um, but they've 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 screwed it. They've screwed it for us basically. But I think we'd, we'll probably have to. Well, actually, just one. And since I'm since I'm hosting or chairing or whatever, I get to say the last point, which is awesome. Um, we only have until until 2045, according to some estimates. We've only got to live till then. Then we'll experience a singularity and we'll never die. So this is going to add a, a, a very different dimension to to the age aspect of politics from 2045 onwards, because you know people will will be conscious forever. So. If you progress rightwards as you get older, then we're going to have a lot of 300-year-old fascists or, or whatever. Yeah. Actually, maybe well, the that's, just, that's just given me the greatest motivation to, one, stay alive and remain left-wing for another 20, 30 years. That's great. Well, Marx, when uh, he, he met a, a comrade from the, the 1848 barricades, the, the, his, um, his friend said, oh, do you not become more, more conservative? As you get older, or I can't exactly remember the, the line, and Marx was like, "No, do you?" Um, so I think it's just a, it's one of these kind of horrible bits of common sense. Do you get more right as you get older? Do you get more left as you come to know more and understand more by listening to more polit uh, politics podcasts? Um, so in the time that we have left, we're going to play a little Alpha Bunga Bunga game. I think, aren't we? We're going to play um, party. Yeah, good point. Um, but but we're actually all on our own in in our rooms in separate cities. Not in a not in so a lavish Milanese villa. No. Well, we we don't know. We should, Phil said he was in Cardiff for work, but who knows? Um, so we're gonna we're gonna do uh, fuck Murray kill. He wants to propose the first trio. Well, I mean, we did last time. Th there was some passing joke about the big three and Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt. So we could go with that. Also, they're all dead. So you know, there's not going to be. There's not going to yeah. be libelous. <laughs> Phil, Churchill, oh. uh, Stalin, Roosevelt. Um, kill, kill, kill. Though um, I would um, maybe get, this makes it, you sound more sadistic, uh, maybe get um, Roosevelt to make me a cocktail first. Um, apparently he was a good cocktail maker, but now that sounds really sadistic and mean. And I'd probably fat shame Churchill before he was killed. Um, but yeah, kill, kill, kill. <laughs> Kill, kill, kill. It's a bad sport, Phil. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a great way to, to, to flip the, the common sense rules of the game on their head and just say, actually, I'd kill all of them. Um, so, Phil, do you, have a, do you have a trio to propose? Oh, Jesus. Um, Obama, Trudeau, Macron. Alex. It's just also good because I'm, I'm hosting it, so oh, I can just be like... Yeah, you can just what, exclude what yourself from the game. Man, you're like the banker. Um... Oh yeah, I think I'm gonna have to. I think I'm gonna. I mean, because I, I guess I could kill all of them. Um, so I'm gonna have to choose. I'm gonna have to start with who I want to marry first. Who, who I'm gonna have to spend the rest of my life with. And I guess, um, I guess Obama. Obama's a bit more the most chilled out. And I don't want to do the cult of personality thing, but you know, he, he kind of is the coolest one of the lot. Um, so. <laughs> And he's also the oldest, so he'd die sooner, so I'd have to spend less of my life with him. So I'm going to marry Obama, um, and I don't really, I don't know about, Macron probably wouldn't be very into me because he's got the whole Oedipal, Oedipal thing going on. So I'm going to have sex with the, with the ever-so-dreamy Justin Trudeau, and I'm going to kill Emmanuel Macron. 
Yeah, I think that's a fairly solid, uh, fairly solid set of responses. Okay, I've I've got um I've got I've got a trio, an iconic trio for you. Um, how about Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky? I suppose I suppose that one to Phil because he's kind of in love with Lenin anyway. <laughs> that's uh, that's oh Jesus. Um... And you can actually say when you would kill them, like in history, if you think that would actually kind of influence oh, history. Nice. So you can actually take one for the for the counter historical team. So you'd, I guess, you would have sex with Trotsky, the dashing, uh, the dashing kind of um, dashing, handsome, you know, kind of uh, young revolutionary. I guess you would kill Marx to overthrow the father to finally liberate. Uh, you know, you would kill him. Oh man. Um, yeah, because you know you have to, you know, you want to kind of um, stop him, kind of, uh, you want to kind of end his constant nagging for humanity to improve itself, and you'd marry Lenin because he would be like, you know, kind of uh, loyal, long-term, dependable partner. That's also, it's also worth noting that it seems like Marx, in his in his personal life, his wife had it pretty, pretty bad, just in that he was a uh, extremely disorganized messy, penniless, um, occasionally philandering husband. So um, those rumors of the philandering, you're spreading Gestapo rumors. They're totally like it's totally circumstantial evidence. And it doesn't I, matter if protest it's true or not. and object. It's it's not um, it's not true. Is it not true? Yeah, myth uh, myth busting. It, it's myth it's like totally circumstantial evidence. This is certainly the most pressing discussion we discuss. I hope we get to the bottom of this. It's vital. Soon. It's one of the most important questions on the left in this time of age. <laughs> we, Forget Kronstadt. We, <laughs> we could actually have like an eight-part investigation, you know, like a, a serial style. Like, <laughs> I was just getting more and more bemused. Like, it doesn't add up. So I asked this person and just... I think it's a great podcast. You could, and also you, it's way more... You could do like show. recorded bits from Soho. Like, you know, someone saw Mark's swinging from one side of the street drunkenly um on a bender here one night in 18 i don't know what and uh and you know and go from there with your investigation i'll tell you what i did go on the uh on the mark's walking tour in soho and it was, no, no, wait, it was yeah it was it was okay yeah it was yeah you get to walk around soho and then go to the pub so it's like yeah it's pretty good actually right i guess i've got to, i've got to put i've got to put one to you guys um and i think i think i'm gonna go with, with the clinton clan I'm going to go with Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea. George. Can you ask Phil this one? I don't... Oh, my God. That's... Um, I actually have... I've met Chelsea Clinton. Have you? Um, yeah. Um, it was a pretty awkward meeting. Um, I knew who she was, so I just said, hi, and shook her hand, and that was it. But I think we had a spark. So I'm going to say marry her, because... Um, Maybe she still remembers me. Maybe she's listening to this podcast. Hey, you might end up being first husband if you do. That would be something. (laughs) I can't imagine her getting elected, right? That's not going to happen. No, I mean... She's obviously going to run for office, but she's not going to win. Well, it's it's her and Zuckerberg for the Democratic nomination next time around. So, you know, who knows? Oh, brilliant. Um, So, yeah, marry her. I think think you'd have to kill Hillary. Um, And then just by process of elimination... Bill is, is, is <laughs> you're taking the cigar apart. from Bill. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think he'd be kind of fun, a caring, it, a know? caring, gentle lover. 
Oh, no, not so much, but more like, yeah, hey, let's have a beer or a few. And that's, you know, I think that could be, that could be bearable. You're just in it for the um, sax. <laughs> yeah. Blow <laughs> um, on this. No, don't. Um, okay. And any others? Have we, <laughs> have we exhausted this, uh, this seemingly limitless well of, of political analysis? <coughs> Jeremy Corbyn, Theresa May, Diane Abbott. I mean, it's not really an equivalent trio, but okay. Um, Maybe it should be maybe it should be Corbyn, McDonald, Abbott. But you know, Abbott, Abbott Abbott's been retired from the from the uh, shadow front bench because of ill health and been replaced today. So. Yeah, so I think this is one thing that really I think is is very unfair the amount of stick that Diane Abbott gets, or maybe that she gets stick for the wrong reasons. She undeniably gets stick for for being a black woman, and she probably doesn't get enough stick for being. Um, for, for being just a, in some ways instantiating what's wrong with the Labour Party, kind of her her political instincts are not that democratic or that liberal. Um, but I think under I don't know if you saw that Guido Fawkes um, picture, which made which he was insinuating that he just had sex with a cardboard cutout of Diane Abbott. Um, that was pretty. That wasn't great. Did you guys see that? Yeah, it was crude, but I thought also. Um... You know the um, the ins the insinuation that it was a rape threat as well, which was made by Paul Mason, was um, equally, if not more, crass and a vicious kind of slur, basically. Yeah, well, I don't, how how? Do, but Paul Mason's got a point. How does a cardboard cutout give consent? That is <laughs> maybe it's we not should, easy. Maybe, okay, this we, is maybe we should do a fuck this is Mary kill. Getting edited out. No, it's not. But maybe maybe we should do a fuck Mary kill of. Who would you rather fuck, marry, or kill of the cardboard cutout of the Labour shadow front bench? That is a good. That is a good question because you'd have to be married to a cardboard cutout, <laughs> and it's which which one is you able to take around town? I think. I think John yeah, McDonald. I, oh, I don't know. A cardboard cutout cutout of Jezza around town. I think you'd be pretty popular with that. You get, get all these lads like, hey, let's get a selfie. You'd get too much attention, and then people would start asking the nature of your relationship with this cardboard cutout. I think the cardboard cutout of John McDonald would be happy just staying at home watching some Netflix. So that's who I would. That's who I would marry. Netflix and chilling. Netflix cutout. and chilling with a cardboard cutout of John McDonald. Weekend yeah, plans sorted. This this sounds like the <laughs> the dream of a of a the kind of fever dream of a of a Labour supporter. Um, so, <laughs> okay, how. Uh, are we are we ready to to kind of leave it there, guys, and say say goodbye for this week and join us next time? I think let us do that, Phil. So yeah, yeah. Cool. That's a great level of enthusiasm, Phil. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm looking forward to the next episode when we will know who has won the election and we'll be able to give more substantive views on the pollsters. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us, listeners. I hope you've had a really just a really nice time, and see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.